Welcome to the Relaxed Running Podcast, the show that helps runners and athletes in running-based sports transform the way they run. Here's your host, Tyson Popplestone. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Relaxed Running Podcast. I'm your host, Tyson Popplestone, and today on the show, we are lucky enough to be joined by Australian sports psychologist, Mr. Darren Everett. Now, for those of you who have been listening to this show for a long time, you'd know that we often take looks at various elements of performance. But one thing that I feel is missing from the repertoire or from the catalogue of episodes that we've posted to date is some stuff on mindset. Sure, we've delved into it from time to time, but today I wanted to get really specific and I thought of no better bloke to speak to than Darren Everett. He's worked as clinical support for the Olympic Games and he's worked alongside a number of AFL players and clubs, as well as a number of elite athletes from a wide range of sporting backgrounds. Today in the show, we discuss quite a lot, but as a little bit of a taste test, we talk about the different approaches to sports psychology or performance psychology. We talk about developing a pre-race mental program and the importance of having something solid. We talk about the characteristics of highly successful athletes from a number of backgrounds. Specific to distance running, we speak about the importance of race planning, goal setting. We speak about dealing with negative performances, different approaches to goal setting, the importance of a system, creating a clear system, as well as so much more. The guy's an absolute, I mean, what do you say? He's just a bucket of wisdom. That sounds more like an insult than a compliment. <laughs> He's an absolute uh, goldmine is a better description when it comes to the world of sports psychology. So, it was a real treat to have the chance to sit down with him. I know you guys are going to absolutely love this episode. I've been excited to bring it to you. If you didn't already know, this year we have two camps taking place. One is a brand new one taking place in Noosa in July 2024, which we're so excited about. I've linked that in the description to this episode. Make sure you check that out because we've got early bird rates before April. So if you're in before April, you get the early bird price. That just helps with booking and locking in numbers, trying to figure out exactly how many people we're going to have up there. If you're interested, reach out. If you're in, sign up. We'd love to have you there. Any other questions, make sure you check out everything we've got over at Relax Running from personal coaching to training plans and so much more. But for now, let me introduce for the very first time on the show, sports psychologist, Mr. Darren Everett. So exciting to, to have the opportunity to actually be able to sit down with you. Like I know we've gone back and forth a couple of times through phone calls and trying to find a good time to do this. But the the subject of sports psychology is one that I'm really fascinated in. I've, I've been fascinated in the subject for a whole variety of reasons, like not only for myself as a runner, but just on a daily basis of, um, you know, the things I try and check off. Like I'll, I'll look at nutrition, I'll look at training, I'll look at mindset. And it just, it seems to be another um, tool in the belt that can be really effective in, in just helping me not only feel good, perform better, but just feel as though I'm ticking the box of, you know, everything that I should be looking at in terms of how to operate at a high level. And I, I know we've got so many listeners out there who are obsessed with the idea of improve, improving in the world of distance running. And so many of these conversations seem to operate around training, around coaching, around weekly structure. But often the, the forgotten topic, I think, in so many of these chats is the actual psychology behind performance. And I say all that as a, as a little bit of a launch pad. Uh, and I'll let you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what it is that you do and who it is that you work with. But I'm so keen to talk, um, you know, about the role that psychology plays in performance, some of the strategies 
you use with the athletes that you're actually working with. But I guess to kickstart the conversation, man, like you're able just to give us a little bit of an overview of, of who you are, where you're working and, and what it is that you're actually doing on a day-to-day basis. I came to psychology in a, in a sort of backwards fashion. So I was a, a road cyclist and I was based in Europe and, you know, for all the great Tour de France cyclists you see, I was one of the struggling guys who, um, you know, he wasn't that talented, but, you know, was living overseas and in our team, we had a doctor and we had a physiotherapist and psychologist and, you know, I loved what all three of them did. But when I retired, I thought, look, I was quite fascinated by, by psychology and mindset, but I felt like I never actually really got given great advice at the time. And I was like, well, I'd love to do that, but to do it even better. Um, and to and so now, you know, once I retired and, and then got qualified, I, you know, I, was, I was the Olympic psychologist for a lot of the sports from um, London, the London Olympics through to Rio. Um, so I was, in, I was in attendance then at the 2014 Commonwealth Games, 2016 Olympics. Um, and then, then after that, went into the AFL um, and the Rugby League and have been there ever since, which is, um, it's, it's a fascinating sport, both Olympic sports and, and the professional codes. For sure. I mean, the, the, the psychology in elite athletes is so interesting. And there seems to be so many athletes with such different attitudes towards the sport that they're a part of. From Like the most extreme example that I often think of is Lance Armstrong. He just seems like a bloke that at the drop of a hat could, you know, turn and mm. <laughs> kill his opposition if it meant he would win. And then the flip side of that in, in some degree is an athlete like Usain Bolt. Like obviously when it comes time to go, He's ready to go. But just the playfulness that you see behind the actual performance or before the performance, I, I always found really interesting. And if, I often look at psychology as a little bit of a spectrum. Like you've got that really intense character, like yeah. the Lance on one side, and you have, I don't know that Usain Bolt's the best example of the most relaxed athlete, but you know that kind of athlete, that real playful, the yes, Haley yes, Gebra Celesi's yes. for you distance runners out there. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you got the uh, Gebra Celesi reference. I thought it might have been a little too niche, but very playful, very bubbly, very optimistic. Like, are there are there many similarities on that spectrum, despite the, the vast gap that there appears to be? There's got to be some elements of just similarities between the approach that these athletes are taking into the performance, despite what, you know, the surface may say. Well, one of, one of my um, highlights at the Rio games was being at the warm-up track um, when you're saying was preparing for the, for the one and the two. And um, I wanted to just basically track him because he got access to the, you know, the, the, the fastest man in the world at the time. I wanted to watch him and how he warmed up and, you know, what was really evident is that with his team, he was mucking around with his squad, he was mucking around with his coach, but you could clearly see the time that it was okay, go time. So when he was rolling and, and activating, you know, he was still in a very, you know, free and playful um, mindset state, if you will. But the minute it started to come to, when did he walk onto the track? There was a, a massive switch. Like, he, you know, you could see him flip the switch and it was all about, getting done what he needed to get done and getting it done in such a way that was going to propel him to to Olympic gold. Um, and that, that's, I suppose, one of the things that I find really consistent is whether you're in, in, in an AFL change room, a rugby league change room, the best of the best know when to flip the, when to flip the switch. Yeah. Um, and you can, it's funny, it's, you know, AFL, you get there two hours early. You can feel the shift in energy, like the boys turn up, they're chatty, you're talking about, golf or 
cricket or their private life. And then just slowly across the two hours, the energy is just progressively building until it, until it's go time. Um, and, and that's something I think that all, all athletes need to get really clear on is what state do I need to be in when I'm about to perform? And be really clear on that. And then, okay, how do I, how do I get myself into that state? And when, do, and when do I actually need to be to hit that state? Does that make sense? Yeah, it's such a good qu- Oh, for sure it does. It's such a good question. It's something that I probably should have paid more attention to had I just had the education when I was actually performing at, you know, the higher level of my own career uh, was what do you actually need to be at this moment? Yeah. Because for me, I, I had very similar warm-ups. I had very similar routines pre-race in terms of what I was doing physically. But mentally, I, I don't think I could have told you an actual process that I had in place. Like I might have a playlist of some sort mm. but wasn't a particular series of songs and often I would get to the start list uh, the start line and for whatever reason some days you take a certain element of confidence to the start line and some days you take a certain level of lack of confidence and for me I, I was always really interested to find that there didn't necessarily always seem to be a correlation between the confidence that I felt going into a race and the performance like some days I might feel a little bit not run down but just a little more mellow, a little more reflective. And if you're, if I was looking at an athlete that I thought was about to perform really well, I would have guessed that there should have been a little more hype involved. And maybe this is different based on the fact that I was a distance runner. So hype only takes you through the first 150 meters mm. before, you know, that starts to settle down. But like when you're working through a process with an athlete and it comes to actually developing a pre-race uh, mental program or, or, or mental repertoire, for lack of a better term, where do you even start that process? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm really big on the the psychologist or the mindset person. Ideally, should be spending a lot of their time with the athlete and the coach, because often we find the athlete, you know, they know a hell of a lot about themselves and about their performance, but they also don't know what they don't know. So having the coach present is. Is, a, is really important unless it's you know unless it's around confidential discussions then it's athlete and and, and psych but it's really about like if you're about to run a marathon so you're ending up on a 42k race you certainly don't want to be wound up and jumping out of your skin half an hour out from the race because you've got you know a couple of hours of, of effort there so it's sitting down with the athlete and the coach and going hey back to what i was saying before Hey, what what state do we need to be in? So you know, and, and historic. I mean, you, you can use history as a, and as an example. So, tell me about your best. Tell me about your best ever run. And what was it like before? What was it like before the race? What how, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? Now, tell me about your worst ever race. You know, what was it like to say before the race? What were you thinking? What were you feeling? And trying to understand, getting a athlete to try to understand themselves because self awareness with athletes is really really critical. You need to know exactly what gets the best out of you. And again, you're just using football because there's, you know, there's you know, 22 guys in the change room. You'll see guys there on boxing gloves, you know, a minute or two to go before they run out. And you'll see other guys who are so zen, they're meditating in the corner because they need to be nice and chill. So it's, again, really understanding yourself and understanding your event. Like, you know, are you, are you running in the 100? Are you running in the 15? Are you running in the 10K or the marathon? And going, well, what do I need? And what does my sport actually require of me as well? What state do I need to be in? Yeah. Yeah, it's such a good point. So the idea that I, I wasn't taking a whole heap of hype 
into a five or 10,000 metre start line probably sounds as though it's in line with some of the actual um, strategies that athletes look at. Like, is there any correlation between an athlete in 100 needing to be hyped for performance? Like, is that something that if you had a sprinter come in or a real high intensity, high contact player come in, is that something that you're going to try and structure a, a little more um, specifically than what you would like a marathon runner? Yeah, absolutely. So they, they you know, and we, and we can all relate to this, they, they need to be really activated. They need to be absolutely on the edge, really, really ready to go because, you know, tenths of, tenths of a second determine whether you come first, whether you win the gold medal or whether you, you go home with no medal. So you need to be super, super activated. And then you also, and this is this is where experience comes in, you will learn over time, oh, wow, I was actually too activated for that event. Yeah. And, and, and so as a result of that, because when you're too activated, basically all that we're saying is that you've, your brain, your body's sympathetic nervous system has become activated, so you've gone into fight or flight. So it's your body's stress response system. And if you're, if you've gone into fight or flight, or your stress response system has been activated, then what happens is certain part of your brain, certain parts of your brain actually start to switch off because that's what's required in fight or flight. Now, in that is the the, the frontal cortex, the part of your brain that's responsible for executive functioning. If your coach has talked about how you want to start and your movement off the blocks. If you if you if you're if you're too wound up and you're in the state of fight or flight, you're going to remember you're going to forget some of those really critical cues that you and your coach have been working on. So, we to answer that question, we need you to be pumped up. We need you to know what that feels like. We need to know how to get you up if you're a little bit under five minutes from the start. But you also we also need to help you know how to bring yourself down if you're a little bit too peaky, so that you're in the exact frame of mind required to fly out of the blocks, but be really clear on the technical cues that you need to be following as well. I've never really thought about it like that. Like it's so easy to, I, I guess, throw a blanket over athletes and go, okay, when it comes to psychology, here are the focus points. And uh, like, obviously, depending on the event, depending on the uh, length and duration, it's going to uh, really dictate that. But uh, are there any sort of standout features from what you see in elite athletes that, that do sort of correlate pretty well between different sports? Like, I know that's a broad question, but I'm, I'm really curious because beneath the surface of Lance and beneath the surface of Usain Bolt, mm. I'm guessing there's, for example, a high level of confidence of, of, you know, of some degree in their ability to actually be able to perform. Mm. But I had an old running coach and he used to say, no, you want to be confident. You want to be confident in your competence. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like a, a funny little play on words, but it really connected with me because it was, this idea that, okay, well, you know you're capable of performing at this level because you've done it before mm -hmm. or you've been very close to it in training. So the goal that you've set for yourself is is a reasonable goal. Now, when you get to the start line, there's no guarantee that your legs are always going to feel as though they're 100% fresh and bouncy and ready to go. But you don't have your confidence in that. You've got your confidence in the ability that you actually have to be able to perform. Mm -hmm. And so there are a couple of things that, from my perspective, seem to stand out or at least really resonate with me. But, but from, from where you sit with athletes of so many backgrounds, what are some of the characteristics of highly successful athletes that are almost essential in the arsenal of uh, you know, what is required to perform at a higher level or at least to be able to take your own performance to a higher level than you have in the past? Well, I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of um, Olympic-level runners in Australia and, and some of them, you know, 
face themselves here and some of them facing themselves out of the US in the in the university system or, or running professionally over there. And one of the most important things that I always talk to them about is you have to be crystal clear on your race plan. Like we can talk about what sort of state you want to be in. We can talk about, you know, about confidence, but what what it has to come down to, you have to be crystal clear on what your race plan is. Like that, you, you because then if, because if you're going to the start line and let's say I saw them, as, as they five minutes out, or I saw them on the fence as, they, as they're coming out of the call room, and they, and they might they might say they might call it, Taz, I'm not feeling, I'm not feeling it, and they might whisper it. Okay, hmm. what I'd be saying to them, you know, in terms of preparation for this, is, well, hang on, if you're not feeling it, what is your race plan? Oh well, you know, say it's say it's an 800. Well, the first 200 meters is so that they've said, and they've chunked their race plan down. So the first 200 meters is X. Okay. Let's just focus only on the first. If you're not feeling it, let's only focus on the first 200 metres. Can you do whatever you and your coach have agreed to do? Yes, I can do that. Okay, well, let's focus our attention only on that. And as your brain wanders off onto, oh, I'm not feeling it. My legs are heavy. Geez, that warm-up wasn't great. Geez, my, you know, my lungs feel like they're blowing a little bit harder than they should be. Well, hang on a minute. Let's, let's, let's grab our brain and let's take it off that and let's focus 100% on the first sector of the race, the first 5Ks of the marathon, the first 200 metres of your 800. Does it, can you relate to that when you were running? Like, could you have Absolutely. dialed more into the first, Absolutely. say, two or first four? For sure. I think the idea of breaking it into chunks was very helpful for me. Like, the way I often saw a 1,500 metres, like, I saw it as three laps and then you had 300 to yes. go. That was yeah. pretty much just the way it worked. And... Uh, you know, I always knew that when I was trying to run around 3.45, all right, I want to be slightly under 60 seconds for 400. And what, what was really beneficial with that for the level that I was running at was like the idea of me going out and trying to run 3.35 would have absolutely blown my legs apart. So if I hadn't had a race plan, I could tell that I was the kind of athlete that I would have got excited and maybe gone out with the 3.35 runner for 300 metres and just cross my fingers and pay for it dearly. Mm. So I think yeah, having some kind of race plan was always beneficial to me because it helped me just let go of the emotion that I felt mm. and actually stay true to the goal that I was trying to set. And I guess um, when it comes to uh, actually not getting too caught up in the emotion, a race plan, regardless of what happens, is beneficial because if your goal is to win, then you want to be somewhere near the lead. Like that could be the race plan. If your goal is to run a PB, then like even more importantly, have some kind of structure in place. It's one thing I actually work with quite a lot with footballers before a 2K time trial. They'll say, I'm unfit. I can't run fast as I did last year. I'll go, well, I watched you do the 2K time trial and you ran your first 400 metres in a minute one, <laughs> which is a pace yeah. that an elite level footballer is going to go at. So it's not that you're not fit. It's just that you didn't have any clarity on the actual time that you're trying to produce. So on a personal level, this makes sense because this is something that I work with quite closely with the athletes that I'm actually coaching as well is to go, okay, hey, let's break down what your goal time is to, into 400 meters uh, chunks. And then we'll, we'll sort of just tick a lap off at a time and we'll reflect on that and adjust accordingly. But what do you think that is from your perspective? So yeah, from my own yeah. experience, it feels like that logic just keeps me a little more grounded and allows me to go out with some sense of confidence in what I've got to do. But why is it that that's such an effective strategy? Just, uh, I guess that single-minded focus is is just really important in helping you not get distracted by all the variables that might come up. Yeah, so I'll sort of digress a little bit to, to answer the question. What I talk to, whether it's 
whether they're talking track and field or whether they're talking tennis or, or um, you know, professional ball sport, is high performance basically is your ability. So the ability that you have or the ability that you've built minus any distractions. So, you know, you might be at 90, you know, if we use, a, use an arbitrary, some numbers here, if you're at 90 out of 100 in your ability, but you're so easily distractible and your distractible score is 50, then your performance is only probably going to end up being around about a 40, okay? Whereas you might not be, you might be a 70 out of 100 athlete, not a 90 out of 100 athlete, but you've worked so hard on nailing your distractions and, they, and, they, and you've nailed your distractions down to maybe only a five now, you're going to be a much better, you're going to be a much better and much more consistent athlete than that 90 out of 100 athlete. Now, they, they might have flashes of brilliance every now and then because their ability just shines through and it's a bit of a perfect storm on the day. But if we can really get you to know what distracts you and have strategies to overcome those distractions, and that's why, you know, you're talking about the, the 1500, three laps plus 300, if you're really clear on what that first lap looks like, but not only in the time, because often the time can be, as you know, sometimes, sometimes there's fast, race, fast races, slower races at the start, it's around, well, what's my process in that first lap? So, you know, are we talking about, you know, sitting in, in, in third spot with really relaxed shoulders? Are we thinking about knee drive or hips high? Like, what are we, what are the real cues that you need to be focusing on across? Because that, in 400 metres, you know, it's still a long time to get around. And if you're just focusing on the time, that can also become a distractor because you might be going, well, I'm not feeling it, or this feels too fast, or this feels too slow. But if we can get you to anchor back into, well, technically, what's going to enable you to run at that speed? Like, did you have particular running cues for you? Like, was it around knee drive or was it around like, hit? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think it's actually a direction I didn't think this conversation would take, but it's such a good breakdown because, you know, from a psychological perspective, when you're talking about race plan, a lot of the time people say, okay, well, what's our focus in mm. terms of speed? Mm. But what you just said is actually something that relates even more closely to what I did and what it is that I do with athletes. Because one thing I noticed, especially with athletes who are going out with the intention of running a really fast race, regardless of what the distance is, is they might have the race plan in place. They're ready to go. They know clearly what it is to do. Mm. And they'll go out and try and execute it based on speed and completely ignore the built-up tension that's come with uh, you know, the, the pressure that's come on them to run a certain time. And so technically, as they've gone out at the pace that they've got to run to run their goal time, they've built up tensions, whether it's through their jaw or yeah. their shoulders, their hands. And you can see the effort there clearly, but you can also see that technically something's off. It's almost as though that tension has has um, you know built up. One of the things uh, you, you asked is, did I have any cues? And you actually said it, like relaxation through the shoulders mm. was... A, one of the most helpful cues that I ever had because it's so easy to tune into. And even though there's a lot of coaches out there who love to get really buried down in the science of technique, and that's fine, like it's a really interesting subject. But I think for 99% of the population, like community runners, which seems to be the majority of the audience who listens to this podcast, that simple cue is so beneficial because you can feel it. Like we all know what tense shoulders feels like when we're just getting around our day. And we know what it feels like when we're running. We know how it feels when it gets more tense. But a lot of the time, it's just the awareness of what, what's actually taking place seems to be forgotten. And so that was huge. Um, a, a lot of the time, my old running coach, Joe Carmody, he, he passed away years ago now, 2005. But he was a huge 
guide teacher to me on the subject of technique. So a lot of his cues were very much revolving around the subject of relaxation and, and sort of freedom through the shoulders. Mm -hmm. So they're the ones that come to me most, uh, more than knee drive and things like that, because obviously I was, I was more focused on the longer distances. Yep. But how far does that boil down? Because obviously when it comes to pace, sure, it makes sense. When it comes to technique, sure, it makes sense. When you're looking at an actual performance on the track, are there any other things that come under that category of race strategy that the average runner might just forget to even think about? Yeah, so another thing we talk about, I talk about a lot is like, it's called what if, what if planning. So you've got to be clear on some critical what ifs. So what you don't want to do is something happen in a race that you haven't thought about and haven't got a strategy for. So I had a, a Nike sponsored professional athlete um, last year and there was a particular race that he was doing in the States and he was like, well, for me, this is actually essentially a training race. You know, I'm, I'm still coming back from, from injury and so I'm trying to build fitness, but you know, there's going to be two guys in this particular race that are going to go out really hard. And he was so we're like, well, okay, if they go super hard, you know, that's a what if. So what if they go super hard? What's going to be your approach? What if the race is really slow? What's going to be your approach? So I'm not sure if I'm answering it right for for the park runners, but for for the elite runners, I'd, I'd want you to have a really clear, do some what if planning. What are the three critical scenarios that could happen in this race? And how are you going to respond to those scenarios rather than trying to work it out on the fly, which usually means if, the, if someone takes off, if you haven't thought it through, often you'll go with them and then you'll find mm -hmm. yourself blowing up at, you know, 600, 800 um, and then the race, the race is over. So I'm not sure if I answered that question. Oh, correctly. no, that's a great answer. It makes a lot of sense. No, no, a hundred percent. That, that really, uh, really resonates in terms of the park mm. runner. Though, like, uh, I guess it just depends on the individual, yeah. but some of the challenges that might come up, whether it's, you know, trying to uh, run a particular distance mm. or navigate your way through a stitch or a pain, mm. Are there many community level athletes that come in to try and get some level of benefit here? Or is this something that, you know, when we're talking about sports psychology, from what I can tell, yeah. it seems to be an industry which lends itself towards the upper echelon of high performance athletes yeah. who are trying to get that that next 1% yeah. to, to go from a very, very good athlete to, yeah. you know, <laughs> one of the best athletes. One of the things I'm trying to do is, Essentially, psychology is born out of the clinical model where if you're feeling sort of mentally unwell or mentally not at your best, then you might go to your GP and, and, and head off to a, a clinical psych. And then essentially sports psychology has evolved off the back of that. But what, I, what I'm trying to do when I go into to teams, when I say teams, it can be an individual athlete and their team is their coach and their physiotherapist or a, a sports team is go, well, hang on a minute let's integrate this Let, let's look at it as you can you can only train three things you can train your mind your body and your craft so whether you're you know, a park doing a park run and wanting to get the best out of yourself you've got to be training your body so your physiology obviously you've got to be training some sort of technique to make sure that you're efficient in your movement but you've also got to train your mind and they shouldn't be seen as independent, like, oh, look, I'll just go for a run. I should be like, well, no, I'm going to go for a run, and I'm going to make sure my technique's as good as it can be, and I'm going to make sure my mindset's as good as it can be. So you should be looking to train your mind, your body, and your craft at all times, no, no matter what level you're at. And 
in professional sports, I'd often have sometimes arguments, sometimes debates with the coach, and he'd say, oh, look, so-and-so is going really well at the moment. He doesn't need to come and see you. I'm like, but if so-and-so is going really well in the gym, do you give him three or four weeks off and say you don't need to go to the gym anymore? Um, or he's training really well, so let's, let's, let's not let him kick today. Let's give him a week off and he can go to Bali. Um, it's like, no, let, let's get the professional athlete or the park athlete to train their mind, their body, and their craft to get the most out of themselves. I love that. I love that. I, I relates so, so well. Uh, mindset is one of those things that I notice is often the first thing to slip. When, when I'm in a good mood, I do exactly that. I go, okay, I'm going to Bali for a week. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I forget yeah. about it. Whereas when it comes to exercise, like there's there's very, very few days where I haven't gone out and actually done something. And I think part of that is the external um, sort of proof of what you've been doing. Like it makes sense if you're looking at an athlete who is going to the gym, um, you know, the skinny athlete like me when I left middle distance running, mm. I always said, all right, I'm going to put on some weight. And what I loved was the work was obvious. I would go places and people go, Tosh, your arm's looking big. Yeah, I go, yeah, yeah, I've been in the gym. Yeah. But with mindset, apart from the the feeling of maybe being down in the dumps, it's just so, it, it seems so nuanced and it seems so sneaky in the way that it works in the, you know, for an hour in a particular day, I might feel great. And then another hour in a particular day, I might feel slightly off. And so you don't get a really good, clear gauge on where you're at mentally yeah. sometimes. Yeah. And so one of the things that I've found really helpful to me, which I actually, I need to be more disciplined with than I am. I've actually got it written up here on my, my wall next to me, a little bit out of shot, is like I like to, a couple of times a day, just stop with uh, like a thought monitoring sheet and just gauge what it is that I'm allowing just to roll around in my mind, yeah. like that cognitive behavior yes, therapy. Because yes. I'll often, I'll, I'll get caught up. And, and this was something that I did a lot after a negative or a, a performance, which I didn't think was great in athletics is I would dwell on it for so long. And before I knew it, I just convinced myself I was in terrible shape and training wasn't working. Mm -hmm. Whereas it wasn't true at all. It was just a story that I'd created. And so the idea of actually stopping to challenge these faulty patterns of thinking mm -hmm. for me is, is really helpful. But when it comes to the, the psychology, I mean, there's so many angles that you can have this discussion from which is why it's so interesting to me like obviously you've got the the preparation phase but then i know the struggle of being between races like whether it's a weekend to weekend or over the course of a week or depending on the sport over the course of hours if you've got like a first and second round or whatever it might be is you've got to try and navigate your way through those frustrating emotions that comes with a disappointing performance and one thing that i actually spoke to ryan gregson about on here a couple of years ago which has stuck with me since was after a bad race, he said he would give himself a certain period of time to be pissed off about mm. it. And then as, and, and he was talking like a matter of hours. And so he would get to the end of you know, six hours after a bad run. And he goes, okay, the rule is there's no dwelling on it anymore. That's done. It's dusted. Let's move yep. forward. And I mean, it's probably easier said than done. But from a mental perspective, so much pressure is just taken off your shoulders when you refuse just to sort of linger in that half depressed half frustrated phase is that something that you notice a lot with athletes who come in like what kind of an impact does a negative performance have on an athlete's ability to be able to back up yeah ma massive like it's huge and again whether it doesn't matter whether you're playing you know under 14 football you're you know you're going in your 5k park run or, or you're pushing for the olympics a, a bad performance will impact your mood it will impact your relationships mm -hmm. It'll impact your sleep, and, and and we don't want that to be the case. Yeah. So, 
what Ryan's saying is spot on. And, and in a bit more detail, what I will say to, to any athlete, it doesn't matter what level and what sport is, you know what, you've got 24 hours to be upset about this because it matters. Okay, again, if you're trying to run, you know, your first sub 20 in a park run, that matters to you. You know, you've put in a fair bit of time, you've made some sacrifices, you've got up early before work, or you're another 14 footballer, it matters to you. So it's, it's okay to be disappointed. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give you 24 hours. But then after that, if you're serious about getting better, you've then got to now go, right, what are the learnings I can take from that performance? That's, that's the critical next question is, okay, I've given myself 24 hours. I've, I've essentially been upset or I've sooked up a little bit and that's completely cool. But hey, now let's sit down and go, let's find the learnings out of that performance. And, I, and, I, and I'm really big on the four to one ratio and it's, it's based on the brain's negative bias. So the human brain is hardwired to be negative. And the re, without going into too much science, the reason why is because in the hunter-gatherer days, we had to have a negative predisposition Otherwise, we would wander across another tribe. And if we thought, you know, that, that, you know, we took this friendly, everyone loves me mindset, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have survived very often for, for very long back then. So you, you were hardwired to be sceptical, to be negative, to make sure that you stayed alive. So what we say to our athletes, okay, right, 24 hours, right, and now let's sit down and talk about what learnings can we find out of, out of that event. Well, I did this wrong and this wrong and this wrong and this wrong. I'm like, hang on a minute. Let's go with the four to one ratio, okay? So if you want to tell me four things you've done wrong, great, let's go. But now you owe me 16 things you've done well, okay? And, 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 they, and, they don't, and they don't want to do that. So, you know, if you are an under 14 footballer or a park runner, hey, even though you think you did a really, you know, you, you set out to run sub 20 and you end up running 24, 30, okay? Well, let's first of all get into what, what, are, what are four things you're really happy with today? Well, I'm happy with my nutrition, my, you know, my pre-race nutrition, my, you know, my sleep the night before. Hey, I had a really, I heard Darren talk and I had a really clear plan. So they, it's four things I did really well, but hey, okay, what's what's the critical learning there? Well, maybe it was my pacing. Maybe it was X, Y, and Z. But Darren, I, I don't want to just have one bad thing. There was actually two or three bad things I did wrong. Okay, great. Let's find those learnings. Let's document them. But hey, let's now lean into the things you did well because we want to constantly over counteract that brain's negative bias. For sure. I really noticed this in myself. Sorry to interrupt no, you there. I, I really noticed this in myself, whether it was after a race or i don't even know if i've told you that i do stand-up comedy you know you do stand-up yeah, comedy yeah, I'm fascinated by that yeah it's become it's become like a lot of the energy that i used to invest in my running training has now been invested in stand-up comedy and i almost I, I definitely approach it like i did athletics and and one of the things i often notice is uh after a bomb like mm, after mm. i go out and i try yeah, a new joke yeah. or i try an old joke that usually works and it just falls yeah. flat I'll be driving home. And it's amazing just how many little doubts creep into your mind. Like despite the fact you've had good nights before or for the sake of this conversation, good runs before, I'll catch myself going, oh, you know, perhaps it's um, I hadn't put enough work in. I'm just not as talented as I thought. Or I didn't connect with mm. the audience. And it's so easy. Like it's the easiest thing in the world to get caught in the negative emotion of what's taken place. So this idea of counteracting like that four to one, it makes so much sense to me because I definitely noticed that predisposition in my own mind. And in fact, uh, for the last 12 months or so, I've just got like a little notebook that I take to each gig and I'll, I'll have like my set list. Mm. And then at the end of each gig, I'll, I'll usually just do three little dot points, like didn't connect well with the crowd, yeah. uh, this joke, uh, amazing, or whatever it might yeah. be. But I might even implement that four to one strategy because it actually forces you to be honest with yourself, doesn't totally. it? Like, yeah, yeah, sure. You can, you can uh, notice... 
um, and write down the negative aspect. But let's also keep that confidence afloat with everything you're doing well. And yeah, it's very easy to throw the baby out with the bathwater, isn't it? Totally. And what we want to do is get away from those really global slash general thoughts of maybe I'm just not good at this. Because then the other thing, like, so that's how I was hanging out with you um, backstage post-performance and you started saying that. I'd be like, well, mate, Tyson, is that, is that a helpful thought? Like, is that... Is that going to help you be better next next performance? I'm just not, maybe I'm just not good at this. Maybe I'm just not a good runner anymore. Maybe I've maybe I've lost it. Well, come on, how helpful is, how helpful is that thought? Let's get let's get let's get specific and try to understand what worked and what didn't work. And if you if you're sitting back going, well, I don't want to do four to one, well then let's go two to one. You know, like four to one is the science. But if you go, oh, oh that's a bit too positive for me, then you go right. Oh, let's go two to one. Let's go two to one. Let's find two things you did well, Tyson. And what's that one thing that you, you really think you're stuffed up on? Okay, now, between now and the next performance, how do we go That's away really and practice good. that? I like it because it's so actionable as well. Like between that and giving yourself a cutoff time for how long you're allowed to sook mm. at or sook mm. on it for, is I, I feel pumped up just hearing it because all of a sudden, like if you're carrying negative energy from one particular session mm. or gig or whatever it is that you're doing, five days into the week, like how much of a negative impact is that having on every other element of your life? And more than that is... What I notice is if I do get myself into a little bit of a funk, I, I bring up a real lack of confidence to the stage yep. the next time I get up there. And it, there's something in comedy particularly where it's like the audience can sense when you're slightly yep. off. And if I'm getting up there and like my confidence is low, you just, you know, whether it's acknowledged or whether it's said out loud or, or not, you just notice you're being picked apart. Mm -hmm. And it's very rare that you get up there with no confidence and deliver a good performance. So, yeah, that idea of just cutting it off, giving yourself uh, positive reflection points makes so much sense. But in terms of, like, one of the things that's such an interesting conversation as well is goal setting. And mm. I know so many runners, very obsessive group of people, very goal-oriented in, in many respects. There's so many different ways I've noticed that people set goals. Like I've been through so many in my own life of, all right, I'm going to set goals five years in advance and two months in advance. And um, at the moment, I've, I'm pretty much in like a little sweet spot where I had a conversation with a guy actually this morning, but he's been on the podcast uh, previously as well, Gordo Byrne. And he's known for his, um, uh, what do you call it? Like a thousand day journey towards elite performance. Yeah. And his mindset is that like consistency over the course of a thousand days can produce incredible results yep. regardless of where you're at Correct. in your journey right now. And so I've sort of taken that philosophy and applied it to marathon running. So at the start of this year, I said, okay, I'm going to give myself three years of consistent running and try and run a really good marathon. But within that is obviously like little bite-sized chunks that in six months, I, for me right now, I just like to develop that consistency to build up calf strength, which... You know, so many listeners know because I was going on about it so much last year had been a problem. Is there a particular form of goal setting that, that you sort of lean towards when you're working with an athlete in terms of how to structure it, what it is you should be shooting towards, how to measure it, and anything else you might want to throw on top yeah, of that? Yeah, so goal settings are it's a real, it's really important, but it's also really tough because the standard model that, that people who are familiar with this space will, will know is the hey, we've got to set smart goals. We've got to set smart goals. They've got to be specific and measurable and achievable and real and time-bound and, and, and whatnot. But the, the trouble with that approach is, you know, I want to run a sub-three-hour marathon um, in 12 months' time. Well, yep. each marathon that you run as a practice, as a lead-up, as a build-up to that, even though you're not going to hit that 
that time then, it's you're actually failing. And that's how your brain processes it. Oh, I'm not at three hours yet. I'm not at three hours yet. I'm not at some three hours yet. And so goals, goal setting is tough because you're always failing until you actually hit the goal. And then when what happens as, as humans is then when we hit the goal, we're like, oh, gee, sub three hours was great. Now I want to go sub 255. And so you never actually allow yourself to stop and you know, stop for very long and enjoy it. So it is really important to set it, to set you know, the, the long-term goals and then the, then the intermediate goals. But the most important thing is to set the right system. Okay, so I, I definitely will talk about goals, but then I'm like, right, let's now really get into the system. So what system is going to enable you to run that? So let's say we, we break it down to maybe a three-month goal, like we've set a you know a two-year goal or a one-year goal. Let's break it down. So what would it look like in three months' time? Okay, it's maybe running this particular time. Okay, what's our system got to look like to enable you to hit that in three months' time? And then even going a bit shorter than that, going, hey, what's our system got to look like for the next month? So you mentioned calf strength. So you might you, you might say, you know, I'm going to do, you know, based on, you know, good, say, physiotherapy advice, I'm going to do, you know, four days, five days, whatever the advice is of calf work before I go to work. And so then straight away, as soon as you've, as soon as you've done that at, say, 5 a.m., bang, you, you, you've met that system. So there's a little dopamine hit there. Like, bang, I've done that. So I'm all about, yes, set your goals. Yes, narrow them down. But then critical question is, what system do I have to design to enable me to hit that? And that can be based around yeah. working with your husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, partner, parents to also enable you to have the space to be able to do that. Um, I digress a little bit. My, my wife often laughs at this. I have a clinical practice um, in Sydney as well, and I've carved out a niche in marriage counselling, um, and it sort of came about by accident. I've done lots of study in it since. My wife often laughs, going, "I wish you could nail your your marriage like you're trying to nail it, like you're trying to nail everybody else's." And it's it's quite interesting. Most of the couples that come in are, you know, reasonably well educated, and half an and they'll tell me their problems in the first half an hour, and I'm like, you know what? I'm here to tell you right now, it's your system that's letting you down. And they, they often get very cranky. I mean, they're like, I'm not paying you good money for you to sit here and tell me about system stuff. I want better advice than that. I'm like, give me three sessions and I promise you we'll be in a better place. And then by the end of it, they're like, you're a genius. And of course I'm not, but it's, <laughs> but it's around the system is, the system that they're functioning in together is what's not allowing them to fly. And so goal setting, you've got to get your system spot on. Otherwise, that's what's going to let you down that's what's going to inhibit you from your goals. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, it's funny you say that. Oh, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense to me as well because it's something that I've been thinking about specifically. I, I read late or in the middle of last year, uh, The Power of Habit. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the guy's name who wrote it, but it was a really popular mm -hmm. book. I'll link it for anyone who's interested. And he talks about it, and I think he uses the, the, the word process for where you say system. Yeah. And it made so much sense to me because, yeah, the, the idea of trying to run a, you know, three-hour marathon, to use your example, is great. But there's three years where you're not achieving your goal, yeah. whereas with that process or with that system, it's almost like daily you're taking practical steps towards achieving that goal. And if you do sort of like what we were saying before with the, the race strategy, like if you have it broken down into smaller chunks and you can see on a daily or a weekly basis that you're, you're ticking the boxes, you're taking steps towards it, then that confidence and momentum 
that you build really stands out. I, I listened to, haven't listened to him for a while, but I used to like this guy in America called Dave Ramsey. Like he's a money management okay, guy. Yeah. And he, he talks about the, the snowball effect. Mm -hmm. And he says that uh, when it comes to trying to pay off debt, one of the things he encourages people to do is to get all their debts, uh, rank them from smallest to largest. And people often go, okay, and then we pay off the largest and work our way down. He goes, no, no, the opposite. He goes, uh, if you've got a $23 debt, pay that off first because you can probably do that yeah. today. And that's already developed a little bit of Correct. momentum. And then you pay off your $51 debt. And yeah, you've done two. And when he speaks about it, I go, oh my gosh, that, that makes so much sense. And in, in the same way, what you're saying about systems, it gives me that feel. It's like, oh, look at us. We're making progress. Mm -hmm. We're making traction. We're seeing benefit. We're seeing improvement. All of a sudden, that three-hour benchmark doesn't seem so big and lofty a goal because you've taken so many steps in between. Mm -hmm. And look, you're 100% right. I can give you another example. Sometimes in the clinic, you'll have um, people come to you and they might want to lose, you know, something massive like, say, 40 kilos, okay? And you go, right, well, we need to get you into the gym. And they're like, but I just I just can't get myself going. And you're like, right, no problems. All I want you to do four days a week is get out of bed at whatever time they agree. I want you to put your running shoes on and I want you to walk all your gym shoes or whatever. And I want you to walk out the front door. But, 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 but we're talking about going to the gym. I'm going to lose 50 kilos. No, no, no. Let's just... Because they haven't trained, haven't moved, haven't gotten out of bed for God knows how long. No, no, let's just get you, get those shoes on and get you out the front door. And then you can turn around and walk back and jump back into bed. Can you do that? Oh, I can do that. Because it's all about trying to reduce the friction in your brain as well when there's some inertia. And then the next week, you know what? Let's get you to walk into the gym. Can I, can you, and then if you go and lift after that, great. But it's around just trying to go. And if, if you go, you know, all I, all I have to do this week to hit my goals is... I have to do my long run on the Saturday. I have to do my hard workout on the Thursday. And I've got to do my calf work every night. Well, yeah. that's, that's, not, that's, that's not that hard to do. But if you string that together for one week, two weeks, three weeks, a thousand weeks, a thousand days, hmm. then you're going to go and hit your goals. So get yeah, your system so refined, get it clear lean into your system and then the results will take care of itself. And when it comes to actually clarifying what the system is, where do you start there? That, that's, that's where having a good coach comes in and having a good team, or whether it's your mum and dad, your husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, is like what are the basics? So you bring your goal down to just the next four weeks. So I'm really big in terms of bookending your goal. So you've got your big lofty three-year goal. Okay, well, what might that look like in a, in, a, in a year's time potentially? But like, what's the next month look like? Well, to achieve my goal in the next month, I need to run, you know, 24 days or I need to run 20 days, okay? Or in your, based on the constraints of your life around, you know, your work and your travel or your study or your family, let's start to design that system. So, oh, well, I need to, I need to be going, I need to be running at 6 a.m. every morning. Okay, well, what time do you need to go to bed the next day? The previous day, oh, nine o'clock. Okay, so you know what? One of my goals is I'm going to go to bed at nine o'clock every day for the next month. Just really sort of that, that's that's a, that's the simple level. Like, does that make sense? Like, what time's your bedtime? What time is your up time? Sure. How many times a week have you got to run? How many times a week have you got to do your your stretching? Um, how many times a week have you got to do your calf work? So it's really narrowing it down to a four-week goal, but then a, like a, what's a one-week system look like? I mean, all of this stuff on paper, 
it makes a lot of sense. But then I know the experience of just having a uh, like a negative experience or missing a day, losing that momentum and just witnessing myself or someone I'm working with just lose a, a bit of motivation. And I mean, I know resilience has become such a hot topic in, you know, mainstream as well as sport. But in terms of actually being able to maintain um, some element of resilience throughout the process, the highs and lows, like the, the moments where you're hitting the goals and then the week where you get sick and you didn't hit any of them, like are there any just little simple strategies as a, as a way out just to be able to, you know, get your mind back on side? Like I mentioned for me that thought monitoring was really helpful. But what else is a, a standout um, practice that someone can do who might be struggling with confidence resilience or commitment to what it is that they're yeah, doing i mean there's, there's a lot there's a lot in that question but like there's one to, to give the listeners something to sort of anchor to there's this little model called AAA, and it's it goes awareness acceptance action okay and, and what, what what that means is you first of all have to become aware of when you're starting to get wound up or disappointed or frustrated okay so you become aware okay and then, you, then the next level is the acceptance. So if, you, if you're starting to get wound up or upset or disappointed because you've been sick for the last week, well, it has to be, it's really important that, you, that there's a level of acceptance. Like in, in life, acceptance is really, really important. And there's a whole clinical psychology approach called acceptance and commitment therapy. But we want to accept that, okay, look, I've been sick. Okay, can I, can I learn from that? Like, is there anything I did wrong, like obviously wrong that led to that sickness or did I just pick up something that was in the environment, okay? So I'm aware that I'm getting wound up. Hey, I've accepted that, hey, it sucks that I got sick, it sucks that I missed a week's training, but what's the critical next action that's now gonna propel me forward? Well, you know, I've just, it's running's time on the legs. You know, I've just gotta get out and get some time on my legs again. So today I'm gonna, it's my first day back. I know I'm not gonna run well. I'm not, no, I might not run well, sorry. It might not be as long a session as I thought I did, but hey, I've just got to get some time on legs. So it's like, let's get awareness of when we're getting going a bit off track mentally. Let's accept that stuff's gone down, I've got sick or I've got injured. But now what's the what's the first or the next action that's going to take me forward again? Yeah. What, are you, what, what are your thoughts awesome. on that? No, that's really good. Oh, it uh, makes 100% uh, sense. It's so interesting to me how often that momentum builder, that confidence builder is just that small step. I just, hey, forget the big stuff. Let's just take a practical step back towards what it is you need to do. And it doesn't, it doesn't seem to matter what it is that we're talking about, whether it's a, you know, a weight loss goal, a running performance goal, a goal in you know, my relationship or goal, whatever it is. Just take that small step and do that daily. And you'll be amazed if you've got some form of clarity on where it is that you're trying to get to, how much does that consistency each day can, can lead you towards it. So Man, I mean, that, that makes a whole heap of sense. I'm, I'm often surprised at how it's just the commitment to the simple things which makes the biggest difference. And, and this is one of those examples where it's like, okay, you don't have to overcomplicate it. Just rock up, do the simple thing, you know, put your shoes up, walk out the front, as you say, and do that until you're at a point where you can, you know, take the next step. I think this is uh, something that's going to relate a lot with a lot of community we've got i've got endless emails from community athletes all around the world just saying that you know commitment to the goal is so difficult because they just feel like they're so far off it and i mean i think what you just said is is the answer but sometimes just how simple 
it sounds often puts people off because they're like, no, I needed something really complex and <laughs> hard to digest. But it's yeah, the commitment to the simple stuff that that really seems to make a difference from you know what I have experienced and from what I can tell you're saying. Is that well? Look, no, I've been around the best of the best. I've been lucky enough to be around the best of the best for for many years across many sports and. Like the number one trait of great athletes that I've come across is they're certainly very obsessive about about their performance and about their development. Doesn't matter what level you're at, they're just very obsessive about it. But simplicity is key, and in psychology, when you really break it down, there's only or mindset. There's only two levers that you can really pull, and that is the levers of thoughts and the levers of actions. Okay, so and and the actions are the easiest things to do. So again, if you've if you've been sick, if you've been injured, and you're starting to worry about like the, the setback and how you, it's just like, no, come on, let's just go and take you know the immediate next action or what's the right action to take right now, and you go and commit to that because what you don't want to do is let the mindset start to impact the actions because there's a another little model say from cognitive behavioural therapy as you mentioned how you think impacts how you feel then how you feel impacts how you behave. So to your point earlier, which was spot on, we have to be so critical about what we let swim around in our mind. Okay, so we often can't control what comes into our mind, but we can absolutely control control what we do with it. So if something comes in that you don't like, well, we challenge it and replace it with something more adaptive. Man, I seriously, it's a conversation that uh, uh, we could have for hours and hours, as you probably do each day, and still have plenty more to teach, plenty more to discuss. But I've got my eye on the clock. I know you've got plenty on, so I'm going to love you and leave you. But maybe we do a round two at some stage when you've got room in your calendar, because that's a subject that I'm fascinated by. And I, I know, I know uh, the audience of Relaxed Running is going to love what you've had to say, man. So thanks for making the time to come on. No, thanks so much. I loved it. So thanks, Todd. Thanks for listening to the Relaxed Running Podcast. If you're ready to become a faster, more efficient runner, visit www.relaxedrunning.com.